Moving on in the second chapter of Mark, if you would this morning turn to Mark chapter 2 verses 18 through 22. Verses 18 through 22. Please listen to the holy infallible word of God. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are... more than a rejoicing flock because Jesus has come. We ask, O Lord, that we would enter this morning into understanding the festivity and the joy of being in his kingdom. The bridegroom has come. Will we not find comfort in him? Give us, give us the security of knowing him. In Christ's name, amen. One of the parables that Jesus uses in our text this morning It's close to an actual situation of my own childhood. Perhaps some of yours as well. As the third son of six children, I received what was called the traditional hand-me-downs for my clothes from my older brothers. In fact, as a young boy, I do not recall receiving many new clothes. (laughs) Mom saved the older brother's clothes, and when I grew into them, I wore them, including jeans. 
As those jeans were made their way to me, my brothers had worn holes, of course, in the knees. I remember my mother would cut out material as a patch, and then she would press the material over the hole with an iron. And I'd wear those jeans with a patch in the knee area once again. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. At times the patch would tear away from the hole. Or it would just wear out. Playing in the neighborhood. Football or baseball. Sliding into second base. I never got to third base. (laughs) Yes, I can understand Jesus' parable. My mother put a new patch on an old garment, and often it was not a permanent solution. But of course, this parable in its illustration by our Lord has much deeper revelatory meaning than my experience, which has no revelatory meaning at all. <laughs> so let us move to the, into the text so that we can truly grasp the context and meaning of Jesus' parable for our own edification this morning. We now come to the third narrative within Chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6. This section of five narratives centers upon the controversy surrounding the authority of Jesus, surpassing the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. Mark places before us the hostility, the opposition confronting Jesus' proclamation and activity of the kingdom of God. The first two narratives, the paralytic and the banquet feast at Levi's house, are most likely sequential in Jesus' ministry. But it is most likely that our text this morning is an, is an incident that occurred later during Jesus' ministry. And Mark places it here because it fits the context and the flow of the drama of the narrative which he wants us to pick up on. After enjoying a banquet feast, it seems logical, does it not, to confront Jesus about fasting, refraining from eating, which had become a prominent activity among the Pharisees. But it is not just the Pharisees, is it? Look at verse 18. The verse begins by mentioning John's disciples. It is John's disciples that are mentioned first. Where did they come from in this situation? And then he mentions the Pharisees. The situation is clear. Both the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees fast. At this point, a group of people come to Jesus. Now note, 
The Greek construct here is that those coming to speak to Jesus are not those who are fasting. They are not from John's side of the aisle, and they're not from the Pharisee's side of the aisle. These people are from the general public who are merely observing the differences between John's disciples, the Pharisees, and Jesus' disciples. They are puzzled. Why isn't Jesus' disciples fasting? After all, John's disciples fast as well as the Pharisees. Now watch the progression here in the text. Watch the progression here of Jesus coming under controversy. We saw it with the scribes, with the paralytic back in chapter 2, verse 6. Then it's the scribes of the Pharisees concerning Jesus reclining with tax collectors and sinners in chapter 2, verse 16. Now, it is the general public. Although the public voice does not seem deliberately hostile in this situation to Jesus, they surely challenge Jesus as to why his disciples are not following these others who are clearly demonstrating their religious piety before the world by fasting. Now notice, there is a twist in our text as to who is involved in wrongdoing. It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. Rather, the general public is looking at the actions of the disciples. Common fishermen and one who is viewed as the lowest of sinners, a tax collector. And then they question Jesus about the actions of his disciples. Concerning the paralytic, if we go back there, the action of Jesus forgiving sin is the focus in chapter 2, 5, and 6. Concerning eating with tax collectors and sinners, the action of Jesus is the focus as the scribes of the Pharisees ask the disciples about Jesus' actions in 2.16. But now to repeat In our text this morning, the action of the disciples is being questioned. Notice the movement of who is being questioned. Jesus and the paralytic. The disciples in the feast. Back to Jesus in the fasting. The movement that Mark is placing before you is that Jesus has supreme authority to forgive sin and heal the disabled and thus he can intervene on his own beyond his disciples. They come in terms of the disciples and ask 
him them a question in terms of the situation of him eating with tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus intervenes and answers the scribe's question. Jesus, you see, what is he doing to defend? He is defending eating with sinners since he is the one who forgives sin. He'll defend himself eating with sinners since he is the one who forgives sin. And now, Mark is shaping his narrative for each of us to see that Jesus intervenes. He intercedes on behalf of his disciples to protect, to defend their actions of religious piety that does not participate in the religious piety and its prescriptions of others. What is most interesting is that he turns the focus from the disciples to himself. In his answer, his protection, his defense, notice this congregation. You are actually in the text this morning, you are actually watching the fulfillment of that marvelous text in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11. Jesus is tending his flock, his disciples, like a shepherd. He is gathering them as lambs in his arms. He is carrying them in his bosom. And he gently leads his young disciples into the comfort of his kingdom glory. Jesus is about to explain to those who are questioning him that the piety which his disciples have now entered by not fasting is superior, is superior to the visible fasting of John's disciples and the Pharisees. How can this be so? How can this be so? After all, their piety is very visible. Their religious piety is so strong that they can go a whole day without eating. Wow! Can you do that? God has to be honoring them since they can fast for a whole day. Your disciples aren't fasting for a whole day. God has to be on their side. Meanwhile, and please congregation take careful note of the arrangement of Mark's narrative once again. It is on purpose. Jesus' disciples have just moved from a feast in Levi's house to Jesus presenting the analogy of them being present at a wedding where food will be definitely served. Definitely. At a wedding, this is not a fasting situation. 
we go to a wedding, right? <laughs> what are they going to have to eat <laughs> afterwards? <laughs> <You see? laughs> so how can a festive celebration of dining at Levi's house and eating in delight at a wedding be viewed as godly, pious living at a higher level than the fasting that is being done by John's disciples and the Pharisees. Now, in order to answer that question, we have to see what fasting meant for these two groups. Concerning John's disciples, it is obvious from the New Testament that many remained devoted to John's teaching in spite of him directing his followers to pursue Jesus. Many remained John's followers while he was imprisoned and even for years after his death. We have an example of that in the book of Acts in Apollos. Acts 18, 25 and 19, 1 through 7. John's disciples remained devoted to him because they were still anxious about the coming time of redemption, which they seemed not to comprehend that had already begun in the coming of Christ. Looking at how Apollos is described in the book of Acts, we start to see here that in terms of him before he became a Christian, it would seem that John's disciples fasted as an expression of repentance with the hope of hastening the coming redemption that is found in the Messiah. Concerning the Pharisees, they had set up two days for volunteer fasting during the week. Those two days in terms of volunteer fasting was on Monday or Thursday, or and Thursday. Prior to Judah's exile into Babylon, the Old Testament prescribes only one day for fasting, the Day of Atonement. After the exile, Zechariah references, which we read this morning, to fast concerning the Jews on the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months of the year. We do not know the origin of the Pharisees concerning their practice of fasting, but Jesus refers to their visible practice in the Sermon on the Mount as hypocrites. We saw that this morning taking on the look of gloomy and disfigured faces so they can be viewed as extremely pious. At this point, we should note that Jesus isn't against fasting. In the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it clear how the follower of Jesus fasts. They are not to allow the hypocrites to be seen They are not to follow the hypocrites in making sure that they are seen by fellow humans, but fast in the humility of privacy where their Father in heaven sees them. At this point, practical and serious self-examination is important, all because of the problem of 
hypocrisy. Being Pharisaic is constantly a trial in our own evaluations of our own lives and our judgment about others. I often begin on the following note concerning this particular subject. No matter how pious you, you personally this morning think you are, or what you are trying to become, you will not be able to surpass the pious religious practices of many on this earth. How many of you can surpass the Buddhist priest? The Hindu's life of material self-denial How many of you surpass the Islamic practice of rotation of five prayer times a day? How many of you surpass the Orthodox Jews before the wailing wall for prayer? The Jews do not call it the wailing wall. They call it the Western wall. Even within Christianity... Can you daily match the monastic and convent life of a Roman Catholic priest or sister? One of the most declared figures of modern thought in the 18th century is the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, whose life was understood as impeccable from people that observed him in terms of his piety and religious, religious piety in terms of his conduct. I'm not going to get in and describe and help you understand what his, the cornerstone of his ethic is. It was called the categorical imperative. All you need to recognize is that he interpreted the category imperative in terms of life in the context of the Ten Commandments. He was viewed as following them immensely in his life. And yet, at the same time, this man claiming to be out of the pietistic movement of modern Lutheranism probably did more damage in the history of philosophical thought to the Christian faith than anyone else. My own philosophy advisor in my PhD at Michigan State became an atheist by reading Kant. And many more have done the same. Well, <laughs> these are only a few examples that if you were evaluating true religious visible piety, none of us here this morning could compare. Few Christians could match the pious rigor of these examples. Does that mean that their life, their religion is truer than your religion? 
So how is true religious piety to be understood in the context of the true triune God who created all things? Where is it? Where is it to begin? Now notice even in our passage, Jesus is not against fasting. He tells those who question him that the day is coming when his disciples will fast. But right now is not the time for fasting. Why? Because the analogy Jesus gives has real application to his own person. Can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? Verse 19. Are you seeing how the Holy Spirit is crafting the narrative of Mark here? We noted last week that the posture of reclining for the meal is a revelation of the foretaste, of the foretaste or preview of the final feast of heavenly glory for those who, for all those sinners that Jesus has called unto him. In fact, we noted that the book of Revelation depicts that festive meal as a wedding feast. Revelation 19, 6 through 8, Revelation 21, 2. In our text this morning, this point is underlined as Jesus uses the imagery of a wedding, which definitely includes a festive meal as a time when his disciples are not fasting. Fasting is engaged in the context of a time of solemn repentance. Right now, the disciples, in the presence of the eternal bridegroom, like a wedding, it is a time of great joy and festivity. The day of singing the new song of which the psalmist spoke is now here. The bridal chamber is bursting is bursting in celebration. Is your heart this morning bursting in celebration in terms of this text? Herein, Jesus directs his hearers to two parables that accent his point. Both parables are pressing that a new, with the accent on the term new, Day of religious piety is here. A new patch on the old garment will not in the long run resolve the issue that the garment is old. Eventually the patch will tear away. Also placing new wine in old wineskins will not help. Eventually the new wine will burst the old wineskins. Congregation in terms of Jesus' parable remain in the context of the text. Although it is true and implied here that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised Redeemer in the Old Testament, the reference is that Jesus' presence has brought a new day of religious piety 
that is not known by John the Baptist's disciples or the Pharisees. Piety is not measured as something you do in terms of self-righteous identification of your activity. Rather, in the kingdom of God, the good news of piety is the overwhelming presence of Jesus. The overwhelming presence of Jesus. In parabolic form, Jesus is presenting these public figures with a forecast, a preview of the final heavenly wedding of the bride and her husband. Congregation, apply. Apply Revelation 21.3 vividly to our text and also vividly to your own life. Jesus' dwelling is with those conformed to his image, the church. He dwells with her and they with his people. And Jesus will always be with them as their God. Jesus, who intercedes for his people, secures his disciples, his children, his flock, his bride, his church, with His presence. There is no fasting in heaven in the presence of the bridegroom. The wedding feast of the Lamb. And there is no fasting now for the disciples as they are overcome, overcome with the bridegroom's presence before them. Their, their identity, his disciples' identity, their piety resides in Jesus. Resides in Jesus. Their piety is found in the presence of Jesus. Their piety of being a disciple of Jesus is shaped by the redeemed and glorified status of Jesus as their host for a wedding feast. Yes, (laughs) yes, it is true that the disciples will have to make their way as pilgrims on earth. 
The day is coming in the immediate contours of history when the bridegroom will be taken away, says the text. And that Greek word is extremely important and strong in our text. Taken away. It has a violent connotation, meaning that Jesus is pointing to the violent nature of his death. Verse 20 of our text. The disciples will fast as they endure the daily trials of being a follower of Jesus. But their time of piety will flow out of their own identity in Jesus as their eternal heavenly bridegroom. When the day comes that they will fast, they will fast out of the event of this particular text as well as the incident of Levi's house. Only there is the power to fast. Only there is the power of piety. Piety for the follower of Jesus is being in awe with the righteousness and the holiness of the person of our God in all his glory. I'm putting together here the implication of the text with Calvin's great definition of piety, which I love, love, love. Calvin says that piety is being in awe, in awe with the presence of the holiness of God. Sadly, sadly, At the end of the 17th century, the Reformed world turned piety into experience. The Reformed world itself moved from piety in the presence of God to elaborating upon my experience of piety. It makes our religion psychologically centered instead of God-centered. Just look at ourselves in the 20th and 21st century where we are as a result of that. Congregation. Jesus, as he is doing in this text, will defend and protect the piety of his followers, his disciples here in the text, as they live out of his presence and in the identity of his presence.
Are you ready now for the cost of discipleship? Are you ready for the cost of discipleship? Questions are going to arise about your religious piety. You are going to be challenged by the world in comparison to other religions. I've given you examples of that already this morning. Other philosophies. Other lifestyles. Where will you direct your critics? Where will you direct your critics? To yourself? To yourself? Or will you direct them to Jesus? To Jesus. Look at the text. Jesus takes on your critics himself. what he's doing for the disciples. He is the very definition of piety. No human being, no religion, no philosophy. Let's get down and really meet the road. No cult. No cult surpasses his holiness, righteousness, perfection, and identity, which is given to you, even in your notable shortcomings. We all have them, don't we? And as the Son of Man, he is the judge of all the hypocritical piety of self-righteousness that permeates the entire human race as he graciously redeems those whom he chooses to make pious. Jesus will not leave his followers whom he has chosen alone. He sends his spirit to live so that we may live a life set apart, separated unto holiness and separated from the world. That deals with what the Bible says is sanctification. Sanctification. Can I encourage all of you this evening in one way or another to tune in and hear a message on sanctification. Part two of our evening series. Let's pray.
Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the exact image of God, as the Scripture says. And he comes to earth in terms of his own holiness, righteousness, and perfection. It is in him that we define our own holiness, righteousness, and perfection, and in nothing within ourselves. O Spirit of the living God, set our hearts upon him and give to us a life of piety that flows from his person and work. Help us always to be in awe of being in the presence of God every day, every minute. In Christ's name, amen.